Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm really aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so why don't you get them together and work yourself through the Word Diet. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles where Paul encourages, mentors, and instructs these young leaders in how to minister to leaders and lay people in local churches. My goal with this show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Right now we're in 1 Timothy 2. In the last episode, we talked about chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where Paul commands believers to pray for leaders. And that's a long, interesting discussion, especially if you're interested in public policy. That's something you need to go back and listen to. But that then takes us to the rest of the passage in verses 1 through 7, about which William Barclay says, Few passages in the New Testament so stress the universality of the gospel. But that comment is coming mostly from the tangent that Paul pursues in verses 3 through 7. So let's read that. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. So verse 3 opens with God as our Savior. Interesting that we usually think and see expressed in the New Testament the idea that Jesus is Savior. But of course, it's true that God is our Savior as well. And then verse 4 expands on this, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Reminds me of Ezekiel 18.23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Similar verse in Ezekiel 33.11. And then 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so this takes us back to verse 1. We pray for all people because in verse 4, God loves all people and wants to save all people. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So Paul writes there that we have been saved and we are part of a ministry of reconciliation to extend the reconciliation we have received to extend that to other people. This is the world that God wants to be saved. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So he wants the entire world to be saved, but whoever believes in him are those that shall not perish, but will instead be given eternal life. Or Jesus in John 12, 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. 
Barclay says here, all men are capable of receiving God. They may be lost, but they can be found. They may be ignorant, but they can be enlightened. They may be sinners, but they can be saved. That is why prayer must be made for all. God wants all men, and so therefore must his church. And so this is important for us to consider as well. Do we want all men to be saved? Are we willing to put the effort in, at least through prayer, but beyond that? If we're comfortable in the goodness of God's kingdom, then this is a no-brainer. We want others to join us, whatever their past, whatever they've done to us, whether they're enemy or friend or neighbor, we want all to come to God because God wants that as well. So God wants it, but what about free will and people's choices? The fact that God wants it is something in the future and implies a choice. There is a past tense of this, verse 6, that he gave himself as ransom for. So that part's a done deal. That speaks to the idea of election, but still we have the matter of free will. So how do we interpret this? One way is to take all as figurative, and that Paul is arguing here that none are excluded because of class, race, politics, and so on. The famous expression of this is Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So whether high or low, emperor and slave, philosopher and common man, all are desirable. God wants all of them in his kingdom. Whether good or bad, Barclay says, in contrast, look askance at sinners who seek entry to its doors. It's not permissible. The church exists to edify the believer and to welcome and save the sinner. Barclay then quotes C.T. Studd, who wrote a little poem about this. Some want to live within the sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. It's also true for the Christian and the non-Christian. God wants them all. Barclay says, for the true Christian, there's no such thing as an enemy in all this world. None is outside his prayers, for none is outside the love of Christ, and none is outside the purpose of God, who wishes all men to be saved. Now, whenever Paul writes along these lines, he's combating both nationalistic Jews who thought they were God's privileged people and that God was not interested in others, and or the Gnostics who argued that one needed special knowledge. God's not interested in you unless you have this special or esoteric knowledge. But Paul is arguing the opposite, that God wants all to be saved. And then back to verses 1 and 2, if we think about the leaders that Paul is asking them to pray for, it's difficult to believe that God wants them to be saved, especially when they're acting in an evil manner, persecuting believers and the like. But as Paul knew himself, all people were meant to be saved, including Paul, including Nero, including those who were persecuting the Christians in the early church, and, of course, today as well. Of course, the other way to read this is pointing to the universal scope and availability of the gospel for all people. Verse 1, he'd used the word everyone. Verse 6, all men. But still, there's only limited acceptance. We see this even in the passage. Verse 3, Paul refers to God, our Savior, implying others have not accepted that Savior. So again, the idea of all here is figurative. It's impossible to pray for all people, back to verse 1 in his command to us. And Paul himself speaks of his limited but universal, at the same time, commission to preach to all men. He's not literally going to preach to all men, but it's a way of expressing the breadth of the commission that Paul has received. So here we're talking about certainly the idea of free will 
and predestination. And the scriptures teach both. So whatever your views on these things, make sure you have a healthy dose of both of those to make sure you stay in good shape on those two key doctrines. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. John 17.6, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. But still there's choice. John 5.40, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Or the combination in John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. John Stott says about this, Scripture undoubtedly teaches divine election, yet this truth must never be expressed in such a way as to deny the complementary truth that God wants all people to be saved. Election is usually introduced in Scripture to humble us, reminding us that credit for our salvation belongs to God alone, or to reassure us, promising us that God's love will never let us go, or to stir us to mission, recalling that God chose Abraham and his family in order through him to bless all the families of the earth. So whatever one's views on this has to be balanced between avoiding elitism, whether of election or of choice, and universalism that denies choice. Okay, let's move on to verses 5 and 6, which is a creed-like definition of the truth that Paul has introduced in verse 4, in particular that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, a rich phrase that requires a lot of discussion. In the introduction to 1 Timothy, I had talked about how creed and church organization have such a prominent role in Paul's epistles, particularly his pastoral epistles, and we certainly see that here. So first, look at verse 5, has one God and one mediator. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And this is in stark contrast to the phrasing in verse 4 about all men. So we have one God and one mediator and all men for whom there should be one God and one mediator. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In a nutshell, there is one God, there is one way, it's God's grace through Jesus and the importance of unity in all men following one God and one mediator. So first of all, this certainly implies monotheism and an exclusive faith. John 5.40, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. John 14.6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But in another sense, it's the most inclusive faith. It's by grace, not by works. And it's certainly the case that we have an inclusive mission, which we were just talking about. God's insistence on grace rather than works, but his equal love for Jew, Gentile, and so on. Romans 3, 29 and 30. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, and the uncircumcised through that same faith. In context, Paul is also talking about the one God rather than the Gnostic duality and two gods who are at war with each other. 
He's also contrasting this with the polytheistic horde of gods who are always capricious and battling with each other. Barclay says it is an emancipation to discover that there is one God only whose name is Father and whose nature is love. This is also a poke at the Jews who relied on angels as mediators. Here we have one mediator. The Greeks also imagined all sorts of mediators versus the idea that gods would deal with mere humans. There was the need for a mediator. Or maybe it's a contrast to deism where God doesn't even care for a relationship that might be mediated with. As Barclay notes, neither in Jewish thought nor in Greek thought has a man direct access to God, but through Jesus Christ, the Christian has that direct access with nothing to bar the way between. Moreover, if there are many gods and many mediators competing for their allegiance and their love, religion becomes something which divides men instead of uniting them. It is because there is one God and one mediator that men are brethren one of another. On this idea of mediator, what a fascinating word, instead of, say, judge, Stott says he's an intermediary who affects reconciliation, an arbiter in legal disputes who represents both sides, and it implies some degree of relationship here. Matthew Henry says a mediator supposes a controversy. Sin had made a quarrel between us and God. Jesus Christ is a mediator who undertakes to make peace to bring God and man together. And then on the idea of one mediator, the only available mediator, John Stott says his unique qualifications as mediator are to be found in his person and work in who he was and what he has done. Job 9.33, if only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. And of course, that occurs through Jesus. The language here used by Paul is fascinating. Verse 5 says, the man Christ Jesus. In the Greek, you have then in verses 4 and 5, all men, one man, that are juxtaposed. And then in verse 5 itself, you have the word man and then Christ and God put together. Again, an interesting combination. And then the man Christ Jesus. So we have Christ, which is the title, the Lord, the divinity of Christ, and then the humanity of Jesus put together as well. Verse 5 also has the powerful phrase, gave himself as a ransom. Isaiah 53, 12, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Or Jesus himself, Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This implies a voluntarily paid but necessary price to release one from bondage and slavery. And of course, that is exactly the position we found ourselves in before embracing the great and good grace of God. And then finally, linking all three of these great words, man, ransom, and mediator, John Stott observes that this is the three major events in his saving career, the three great doctrines of salvation, the incarnation, the atonement, and the heavenly mediation. A few other phrases to discuss toward the end of verse 6. The testimony given at its proper time could easily be Christ's death in the context of what Paul's been talking about, Galatians 4, 4, and 5. But when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Or Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom 
also he made the universe. But it could also be Paul's opportunity to proclaim the gospel. For example, Titus 1.3, which now at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. And that's certainly the angle that Paul is going for here in 1 Timothy 2.7 when he talks about his purpose, that he was appointed a herald and an apostle, language he'll use again in 2 Timothy 1.11, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Barclay notes that he names four offices here, witness, herald, apostle, and teacher. And in a nutshell, John Stott says the local church has a global mission and the universal concern of the church arises from the universal concern of God. That's what we see here throughout this passage. Perhaps this is to underline the availability of the gospel to the Gentiles rather than exclusivity or using the term Gentiles to refer figuratively to the rest of the world, back to the idea of all men in verse 4. On the role of heralds and teachers today, Stott says, it is not enough that the Son of God was born, died, and was raised, or that he is the uniquely qualified God-man, ransom and mediator. This great good news must be made known, both heralded and taught throughout the world. And then finally, in verse 7, he talks about himself as a true and faithful teacher, along with the side comment that he is telling the truth and not lying. Walvern and Zook describe this as a stylistic device designed to stress the importance of his point. He does something similar in Romans 9.1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. In our day, we use the phrase to be honest, and we don't really mean that literally. Hopefully, we mean again, a great emphasis on a particular point, or maybe the phrase should be to be candid. Hopefully we're always honest. Sometimes we're more candid than others, and sometimes we want to bring emphasis to a point. Here, Paul is dealing with false teachers, and especially given after his discussion of being an apostle, it's important that what is being sent out with, what is being taught, is true and not false. All right, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to the Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 7, and that takes us to verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. So the word therefore is helpful. It tells us that he is returning from the end of the tangent that he was pursuing in verses 3 through 7, and it probably lines up the context of what Paul is doing here with problem solving rather than making a bunch of -of out-of-the-blue comments. So his focus turns first to men in verse 8, that they would lift up holy hands in prayer. The idea of lifting up hands in prayer appears quite a bit in Old Testament narratives. In Exodus 9.29, Moses uses it to stop the seventh plague of hail. It shows up in Exodus 17, verses 11 through 13, in the battle versus Amalek. We see it in 1 Kings 8.22, with Solomon dedicating the temple. Nehemiah 8.6, people praising the Lord. In Lamentations 2.19 and 3.41-42, it's used to picture desperation and repentance. There are a number of references as well in the Psalms. The one I want to read is Psalm 141.2, which says, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. Barclay notes that the early church took over the Jewish attitude of prayer, which was to pray standing with hands outstretched and palms upward. He then cites Tertullian, who compared it to the pose of Jesus on the cross. 
But you probably noticed I left out a word. It's lifting up holy hands. Barclay says this does not mean for one moment that the sinner is not allowed access to God, but it does mean that there is no reality in the prayers of the man who then goes out to soil his hands with forbidden things as if he had never prayed. It is not thinking of the man who is helplessly in the grip of some passion and desperately fighting against it, bitterly conscious of his failure. It is thinking of the man whose prayers are a sheer formality. Reminds me of James 1, 6-8, the double-minded man who asks and does not receive. We ask God for input and treat him as some random counselor that we may reject his advice. That's not the way to approach prayer. This also alludes to the process and progress inherent in sanctification. Just because we're good or at some level, if we're not pursuing goodness and discipleship with Jesus, then it doesn't make sense to pray. Prayer is a part of not formality, but sanctification. The scriptures speak elsewhere about hindrances to prayer when sin is involved. Isaiah 1, 15 through 18, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. In other words, it makes no sense to do injustice and oppress people and then come to God with many prayers. Settle the matter. Accept God's grace. Come to God on his terms in obedience and wanting his best for your life. Or Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Matthew six twelve, And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. If we don't forgive others, why would we expect God to forgive us? First Peter 3, 7, Husbands in the same wise be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. But Paul seems to have something more specific in mind here. He mentions without anger or disputing or quarreling. Jesus does much the same, Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Mark eleven twenty five. and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So in context, Paul is concerned about anger and quarreling as opposed to unity. They're supposed to be lifting hands rather than throwing hands. Or as Barclay observes, forgiveness is indivisible. If we don't forgive others, how can God forgive us? Holding up hands within praise is also connected to surrender and submission. And what's a better antidote to most anger, at least the unrighteous type? Now, the wording is interesting in translations here. Are anger and disputing the same and combined, or are they meant to be separate ideas? In fact, the word for disputing can be translated other ways, in particular as doubting. And if so, then anger is one thing, doubting is another. Barclay takes this angle and says a man must believe and not doubt in order to pray effectively. Back to the double-minded man of James 1, but also Hebrews eleven six, that we must believe that God exists and that he earnestly rewards those who seek him. One last word to hit in verse 8, everywhere. 
So again, the universality of what Paul is commanding here. He's going to get into cultural matters in the next passage, but a lot of what God expects from us is universal, a unity of faith and a unity of conduct. Lord, help us to be unified in our pursuits, to pray for our leaders, to follow the one true and great God, the mediator, Christ Jesus, and to lift holy hands in prayer, all of us, everywhere. In Jesus' name, amen. Time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Right now we're in 1 Timothy 2, and I want to read verse 8, which we've already covered, along with verses 9 and 10, which we're about to cover. They're part of the same passage. Paul writes, Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So verse 8 is directed at men, verses 9 and 10 directed at women. Verse 9 says to dress modestly with decency and propriety. And this is at least for public worship, which is mentioned in verse 10, but likely beyond that. There's a universal principle here for Christians, and this is not directed at non-Christians since we're talking about worship service. We shouldn't try to hold non-Christians to any of this. That's certainly clear. Verse 9 also mentions with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. These are cultural applications that we need to extend to our own times. It could be that this is connected to the current styles and clothes worn by temple prostitutes. In other words, if prostitutes today wore blue short sleeve shirts with one sleeve torn, you'd tell people not to do the same. Don't look like a prostitute. It's not a good look. At the least, it's obviously connected to wealth, or at least flaunting the wealth. A number of generalizations come to mind here. Matthew Henry talks about women being more in danger of exceeding in their apparel, and to the extent that women are more into clothing than men, there are some warnings here that are in line with idolatry. Another generalization would be that men are more visual and more likely to struggle with lust, and thus there's more need for women to take care here, not to be a stumbling block to other people. This is certainly not a problem with looking good in church, dressing relatively well. It's possible to go to one or either side of the ditch on this one. You could dress too well and take it too seriously or dress too casually. We need to be careful with what we wear without being judgmental and legalistic. John Stott says there is no biblical warrant in these verses for women to neglect their appearance, conceal their beauty, or become dowdy or frumpish. In fact, the glorified church is depicted as a beautifully dressed bride in Revelation 19, so that's not what's being critiqued here. Again, certainly the easiest application here is to economic modesty. Women should not dress in a way to flaunt their wealth. This is inappropriate for a number of reasons. It points to idolatry. It makes other people uncomfortable. It makes the moment about them more than God, and so on. And Paul is certainly also noting that the focus should be on internals rather than externals. Externals are distracting from the greater good. We should be dressed with good deeds, and those are appropriate for women who profess to worship God. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Maybe the way to think about this is, does beauty and the pursuit of beauty distract from the greater things? Does appearance distract from character? And so on. Stott says, two kinds of feminine beauty, physical and moral, beauty of body and beauty of character. The church should be a veritable beauty parlor. 
But it's not what we look like, it's what's going on inside that is the top thing. Are we focused on drawing attention to ourselves in a form of narcissism and idolatry, or are we more interested in loving other people, worshiping God, and so on? So now we move on to 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15, and this passage is so difficult and contentious and debatable that this is one of two times I can think of in the scriptures where I spend quite a bit of time setting the table before I even get to covering the passage. The other place I do a lot of this, in fact, a ton of it, is in my coverage of the book of Revelation. So we have something here difficult, debatable, and contentious. Let's set the table before we dig into the passage. What do we do with it? Four options, I think that are possible. First, we can ignore it and avoid it, and that's what's done most of the time. One of the beauties of expositional teaching and preaching is that if you have to cover everything, you can't just be skipping around. Now, that said, I wouldn't expect this topic to come up a whole lot in churches, at least those that have a lot of non-Christians in them, because this is going to be so difficult for them to handle. This is better taught within a Bible study format. The second approach is to dismiss it quickly as purely cultural. This is what we see out of liberalism, which selectively ignores scripture as obsolete or irrelevant because the cultural context is different from today. Now, this is a very dangerous position since it can open a similar door on other passages. In fact, most of the New Testament is addressed to specific situations. So if that's your hermeneutic, you could end up blowing off the entire New Testament, or more likely the parts of the New Testament you just don't happen to like for other reasons. John Stott says, does this text really have nothing normative to say about the relations between men and women? Or putting it in more crass terms, is it really a waste of space or print to include this in the Bible? Surely that's not the case. The third approach is a rigid or wooden approach with no sense of cultural context, and we might call this literalism. So we've got liberalism and literalism. John Stott says this is like adopting a rigid literalism and regard other approaches as evasions of, quote, what the Bible plainly teaches. Again, this reminds me of Revelation, where some people claim to read it literally until they don't. None of us read the scripture literally. When Jesus says he's a sheep or a door, we know that's figurative. So we read scripture as it's meant to be interpreted as best we can. We look at genre we understand figurative language, hyperbole, and the like. So there's no need for that within hermeneutics, and it's even if it's appropriate, it's rarely consistently applied. So I guess those who are in the literalist camp, if we could get them to calm down a little bit, and it's ultimately not all that helpful in this passage either. We want to avoid liberalism and claims to literalism. So then we're looking for a broader context and an immediate context as we interpret this and other passages. For one thing, God's word is human and divine. God is working out his word through human authors and local contexts. God's work in us is within time and place. He is the God of history and creation. So ignoring time and place as we interpret the scriptures is simply not appropriate. We don't ignore time and place as Jesus works in our own life, and we certainly should not do it as we interpret the word of God. Now let's look at some broad contextual points to open this. First, we look at the Jewish background. Men came to synagogue to learn, women at most to listen, and women, children, and slaves were classed together. So obviously this is quite different than this. If we look at Paul's writings, the ministry of Jesus, and so on, there's obviously a higher view of women that we need to embed into our understanding of this passage. 
We also have the Greek background at hand. Barclay notes the connection between temple prostitution and concludes the fact is that if in a Greek town, Christian women had taken an active and a speaking part in its work, the church would inevitably have gained the reputation of being the resort of loose women. Broadening this out a bit further, it's obvious that character matters more than reputation, but the scriptures also are concerned about reputation. It also matters. Now, how far do you push that? That's debatable, but both character and reputation matter. And if we give the perception of evil or the perception of being pagan or the perception of whatever, Paul and Jesus both talk about the need to take that into account. So, if we look at the frequent accusation of Paul as a misogynist, the fact is he is generally a freedom monger in his context. In the context of Jewish and Greek culture, he is a radical by any reasonable account. We also find a culturally amplified role of women in the Old Testament and New Testament, and we need to take that into account as we interpret this passage. If we look at the specific context, we go back to the beginning of chapter 2, which was on the context of living peaceful and quiet lives, chapter 2, verse 2, which was applied to worship, community, and the world's perception. That's the context in which Paul is speaking to Timothy about the Ephesian church. John Stott begins the next section by discussing two key hermeneutical principles. Hermeneutics, by the way, is the science of interpreting Scripture, so we're all into hermeneutics, whether we like the $2 word or not. What are the principles of interpretation? And Stott underlines harmony has to have an underlying consistency within the Scripture. And what do we know there? Well, for example, way back to Genesis 1, the equal value and dignity of men and women by creation and redemption so obviously Genesis 1 or Galatians 3.28 on redemption, we're all one in Christ Jesus, and history, the role of cultural and historical context. Speaking on the latter, Stott says, God always spoke his word in particular historical and cultural settings. No word of God was spoken in a cultural vacuum. Every word was spoken in a cultural context. It is, in fact, the glory of divine revelation that in order to communicate with his people, God did not shout culture-free maxims at them from a distance. Instead, he stooped to their level, entered their history, assumed their culture, and spoke their language. Yet this divine condescension also creates acute problems of interpretation for us. And that's the reality. It was much easier for Paul and Timothy in the church at Ephesus to understand what Paul meant here than it is for us eavesdropping on this conversation for 2,000 years ago. So at least we want to embrace this moment with humility and not pride. Any hermeneutic that is dogmatic or laced with pride and certainty and dogmatism is probably not going to be the right one. Stott advocates what he calls a cultural transposition to discern in Scripture between God's essential revelation, which is changeless, and its cultural expression, which is changeable. Now, this approach provides fewer easy answers, but if all your questions and answers are easy, then you're probably worshiping a really small God. We're looking for truth, not simplicity. And this requires effort, the Holy Spirit, that's a good sign, patience, and true tolerance with others who come to different inferences. This promotes robust relationship with both God and others. So let's apply this hermeneutic to the passage we just finished, verses 8 through 10. Verse 8 was on prayer, and so you always pray in holiness or love. That's an ethical concern that cannot be bent on, but not necessarily with raised hands. That's a cultural norm. 
verses 9 and 10. Modesty, decency, propriety, and good deeds, that's ethical. That's not debatable. It's universal. But appropriate clothing, hairstyle, and jewelry is cultural. It certainly doesn't solve every question, but I hope the cultural, ethical lens is something that helps you interpret this passage and others. Before we dig into the passage itself, verses 11 through 15, we need to take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 and 10, and then I covered the context for the difficult, debatable, and contentious passage in verses 11 through 15. If you missed that introduction, I hope you'll catch it later on the radio or on the podcast because it helps to set the table for what is a really difficult passage. Let's read it now. Verses 11 through 15. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So let's take verse 11 and the last half of verse 12 first. Women should learn in quietness and full submission. And then late in verse 12, they should be silent or quiet. The first thing to know here is that the only command in the passage is should learn. And that's amazing because women in that context were not allowed to study or learn at all in either Judaism or Greek culture. So the fact that it's commanded that they should learn is amazing. Now, part of this is quite understandable from the context. Paul has talked about the problem of false teaching. He'll come back to it, particularly with respect to women, in chapter 5, verse 15, and then again in 2 Timothy 3, verses 6 and 7, and how would they combat false teachings if they're not learning? And so it's absolutely essential that women learn. And so that's the opening thing to know about this passage. It is, in fact, a radical statement for Paul's time. It does not disempower Instead, it frankly empowers women in an amazing way. The word silent or quiet should be rendered quiet. It's the same thing that was mentioned in verse 11. 1 Peter 3.4 translates it as quiet. 2 Thessalonians 3.12 translates it as settle down. So it's not about being silent, but rather being quiet. We'll come back to that. Submission is mentioned here, but to whom? The Greek word can be translated woman or wife, and there is debate over which is required by the context. Now, the first half of verse 12 mentions no teaching or authority over a man. On the teaching part, in that setting, typically they would not have been in a position to teach given so little knowledge. Again, back to the empowerment of this, that they should learn. And it's certainly not a complete prohibition against teaching, given that we have the example of Priscilla with Apollos as an act of private teaching in the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 26, and familial teaching is something Paul will describe in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 15. As for authority, that's where the rest of his argument has been headed since the beginning of chapter 2, so we need to take that quite seriously, given the context. In the context of chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, men should lead and be heads. For women, then, we wonder what is in store here. Perhaps it's taking or usurping authority versus merely having authority. The Greek word here, authenteo, probably means autocratic or stolen, although it's its only New Testament use here 
That darker meaning is what's used in two-thirds of the secular references. James Chung uh, gave me that observation. And again, looking forward in the passage, 1 Timothy 3 is going to be about deacons and elders. 1 Timothy 3.11 is either about deaconesses, female deacons, or the wives of deacons, which would obviously be a key role in terms of knowledge, wisdom, the ability to counsel other people, but limited authority. The deaconess would not, for example, have authority over a deacon. Whatever this means with respect to authority, it's also important to note that authority exercised by men has to be properly defined and then practiced. This would indict men if there are sins of omission or commission. On the latter, Stott says, a caring, not a crushing headship, a headship of self-sacrifice, not self-assertion, of love, not pride, intended to be liberating, not enslaving. And of course, all this is reminiscent of a discussion we had back in Ephesians 5 about the relationship between husbands and wives. To generalize, there are two basic ways to read verses 11 and 12. One is to see them as repetitive and thus normative. The second is best represented by John Stott's comments that we talked about earlier, that submission and authority are universal. As we'll see in just a minute, they will be grounded by Paul in the doctrine of creation in verses 13 and 14, but quietness and no teaching would then be cultural. If Stott is right, this is the same pattern we saw in verses 8, 9, and 10 with commands that were universal within a cultural application. There are many efforts, as you might imagine, to try to explain away verses 11 and 12. The only other one I think that has any credibility is that this could be reduced to Paul's personal opinion. If you look at verses 8 and 9, he says, I want, and verse 12, he says, I do not permit. And so some take this to be Paul's particular opinion of this that should not be generalized. Not sure that's a strong position, but it's at least interesting. It's also important to note that teaching does not necessarily equal authority. And we know from the scriptures that public prophesying doesn't seem to be a problem elsewhere. For example, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 3 through 5, Paul talks about the doctrine of creation. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And then two verses later, he says, Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. But there's no problem with women prophesying in that context. It does not apparently note authority. In fact, the most challenging passage on this is actually in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 33-35, just a few chapters later than what I just read. And there, Paul talks about women being silent. James Chung, again, very helpful in an article called Can Women Teach, notes that at the end of verse 34, when it says women should be silent, he has a little phrase at the end that says, as the law says. But there's nothing in the law that actually says that. And so he gives credit to Walter Kaiser Jr., who taught him this, and who argues that, in fact, Paul's being sarcastic here and that we should interpret as the law says in quotation marks. So bottom line is there, it does not look like 1 Corinthians provides much support for the more conservative interpretation of 1 Timothy 2. Another practical question is the implication of how we view the authority inherent in certain roles within the church. At our church, we used to have an active men's choir, and it had a female leader, and there were people that were wondering if that was appropriate. Is it the authority of being the leader of the men's choir? Is that problematic? When I taught a Sunday school at the same church, I was the leader, but we had a president 
but the president didn't have ultimate authority. I was. I was the leader. The president was more of an administrator. And at times I would have other people, men and women, both teaching. But there was no question who was in charge. The authority was me, regardless of whether we had a female president, quote-unquote, or a female teacher from week to week who was stepping in, learning how to teach more effectively. I guess wrapping up verses 11 and 12, whatever your view on these things are, know your premises, don't be unnecessarily divisive, and make sure it lines up with history and other passages. Then in verses 13 and 14, Paul provides some reasons. Verse 13, Adam was formed first, and verse 14, Eve was deceived first, similar to the argument in 1 Corinthians 11. But Paul's usual argument elsewhere is that Adam is the one to blame, for example, in Romans 5. None of this is that men are superior, being formed first. I mean, Adam was formed out of dirt and preceded by animals. That doesn't make dirt and the animals better than man. And it's not that women are especially prone to deception, given Paul's instructions that women should teach children, 2 Timothy 1 and 3, and younger women in Titus 2. But Adam was theologically formed first. So the focus here is on Eve being deceived, in contrast to Adam, who was rebellious in that he should have known better. So the implication, let women learn, but be careful with having them speak without sufficient knowledge, exactly what Eve's problem was. This is in line with the legal privileges and rights as God's created firstborn, but it's also the flip side of Adam's sins of omission in Genesis 3, 6, standing there like a dope when his wife is being tempted by the devil. And then in verse 15, we have what we might consider an outlet, that women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, saved by and through what? Certainly can't mean salvation in terms of justification, but the word salvation has a rich meaning in the New Testament. We're saved from things, we're saved to things. My favorite is that we're saved from a profitless life. So what does this interesting verse mean? Well, one is that they may be physically preserved to get through labor. Of course, it's not always true, especially in the old days, but maybe it's true in the sense of Proverbs or a general sense of blessing. Maybe it's an application of working out one's salvation, as Paul describes in Philippians 2.12. Maybe it alludes to advancing the kingdom through bearing and raising children. All those are interesting ideas, but I think the easiest, most powerful interpretation is that the word childbearing literally means the childbearing and so likely alludes to Christ's birth through Mary, especially in light of Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so that original curse of the serpent and punishment for women is ultimately the first sign of salvation that would ultimately come through Mary. It's what Paul uses to summarize his argument here. Finally, there's a really nice article by Wendy Alsup in Christianity Today called Saved Through Childbearing on this passage. And she links all this to Revelation 12, which is basically the Christmas story from the perspective of spiritual warfare. And she also mentions an amazing 2003 painting of Mary consoling Eve. Check that out if you haven't seen it. Alsop writes, God speaks words of redemption in Eve's presence before he announces the painful consequences of the fall in her relationships. Rather than merely offering Eve the personal hope of her own rescue from her sin, God speaks of her as the vessel through which would come the salvation of all. Woman may have taken part in the fall, 
but she would also nurture in her womb and at her breast the one who would save us all from the fall. Eve's shame would be reversed through the coming of the Savior. When Paul uses the word save through childbearing, he's not referring to the physical survival of humanity through procreation, but to the birth of the child, literally the childbirth. While our need for salvation may be tied to Eve, the birth of the Savior is tied to Mary. The shame of Eve finds its ultimate reversal in the dignity of Mary. Wherever Christ's name is received, woman is saved and her dignity restored as God himself foretold over Eve. God's words over Eve were fulfilled in Mary, and the dignity of woman is in the deliverance of all mankind. The Savior has been born and the battle won. We are now heralds and participants of grace, Through the life and death of Christ, we are dignified, restored to glory, and empowered to fulfill God's purposes for us, just as we were created to be. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.